Hello, and welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast from ABC News. I'm ABC's Brad Milkey in the seat of power, filling in for Jonathan Carl and Rick Klein, who are away this week. They get rubbed up for the big conventions. But our deputy political director, Shoshana Walsh, is here. I don't believe I've ever seen you take a day off. So hi, Shosh. Hi, Brad. And it's great to be in the same room with you, just microphones away. Oh, my gosh. That's right. We, uh, we're in a new space right now. And uh, you used to have to walk 15 minutes to see me. And, and just talk on the phone. Now so now we're in away. person. Some big shoes to fill here this week, Shush. Uh, is Klein and uh, Carl are gone. But with great power comes great responsibility. We have a great show lined up, thanks to our producer, David. So don't go anywhere. Uh, Before we get going, just want to remind you to rate our show and leave us a review if you're listening on iTunes. It helps us move up the rankings, helps people see us, and we love the feedback. Rick and John especially love feedback, so you should definitely tell them what you think of them. Uh, We're also... (laughs) I think they'll appreciate that. We're also now on Google Play Music. So Android users, head over there, subscribe. You can also find us on Stitcher Radio, and as always, all of our podcasts up on ABC News Podcasts. Okay, let's get to it. We've got two very special guests this week. First, we're going to chat with New York Observer writer Dana Schwartz. You heard about her when she wrote that fiery letter to her boss, Jared Kushner, who just happens to be Donald Trump's son-in-law. This was right as the controversy was blowing up around that tweet that included what appeared to be a star of David on top of a pile of money and Hillary Clinton. We'll get into all of it. Then we'll talk with numbers guru Harry Enten from our partners at 538. They unveiled their vaunted general election forecast. And the moment that comes out, it's instantly as influential as any poll. So he will help us break down their numbers. But Shush, without a doubt, the biggest story of the week is Hillary Clinton's emails and the FBI investigation into them. Right. It has been a pretty bad week for Hillary Clinton. Yes, we, we saw the FBI director, James Comey, and come out. And of course, I should say, Brad, that was a real surprise for everybody. Uh, come out and say, yes, there would be uh, no prosecution. But what he said uh, was a, an indictment of its own, I should say. He said that uh, she was extremely careless, that hostile actors could have accessed her email. Uh, and all of these comments that that James Comey said this week, I mean, we're likely to see them on the campaign trail. We'll see them in advertising. We're supposed to see them on the stump. Of course, we've seen in the last few days, uh, Donald Trump has mentioned it, but I think for most Republicans, they would like him to focus on it. Instead, we've heard more about that tweet you just mentioned. Of course, we've heard a lot about Saddam Hussein on the campaign trail. And I think that uh, Donald Trump is in Washington this week talking to Republicans in the House and Senate. If I could be a fly on that wall, Brad, I think I would... I think we'd likely hear him them tell him to focus, 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 focus on those emails, focus on uh, on that fiery, those fiery comments from from James Comey this week. But we'll see if that happens. Yeah, because think about it. I mean, here's what Comey did. He he basically laid out the perfect playbook for Republicans and for Donald Trump. Here here's here's some of here's just some of the points that he laid out. He said Hillary Clinton actually had multiple servers. We didn't know that before. Uh, more than a hundred emails were sent that contained sensitive information. She deleted work related emails. Didn't hand them over to state. Uh, he couldn't find a successful hack. But he says we have to assume, as you said, just that hostile actors were able to peek into their system. And lastly, he said no reasonable person would have done this let alone the secretary of state, let alone the person who wants to become president. So, I mean, if you're Donald Trump, yeah, don't you just want to be focusing on this all week? Or is there some larger uh, is there some larger advantage to what he's doing right now? Right. And I actually think that this is almost the best of both worlds for Donald Trump and Republicans. Uh, yes, it didn't end in an actual indictment, but that would have taken Hillary Clinton 
off of uh, off of the campaign trail and possibly replaced her with a stronger candidate. So that's not what they want. Uh, so I, I think that they should be taking advantage of this uh, because I think really, Brad, this comes down to two important issues. Judgment being first one and the judgment that she should have known better, which is exactly what the FBI director said this week. Um, And that's something that Donald Trump and Republicans should be pushing if they want to win, that is. And then also that the answer that we've heard from Hillary Clinton this past year, over a year, that she didn't knowingly send or or receive classified information was incorrect, uh, wasn't true. So I I think that that those two really important issues, yes, this might be a very complicated story, but it really comes down to that. And that's what uh, Republicans should be focusing on if they want to win. But they have a candidate that has a really hard time focusing. How do you think Democrats feel about this? Because I know Clinton aides seem like they were on a different planet compared to the rest of us uh, when they were saying, you know, uh, the legal hurdle is over. The legal problem was the thing we cared most about. This is now just a political problem. And if there's anyone who can handle a political problem, that's Hillary Clinton. I don't know. Does does that fly to you? Well, I think that the main crux of this, that they're relieved that this isn't a legal issue. I mean, that's true. Uh, that would have derailed the entire campaign. Uh, but I think that would have that, been that flashpoint that is a once in a generation sort of thing. Exactly. Would have never seen that and I before. don't think that anybody thought that was going to happen. But I think short of that, that what the FBI director said this week was as worse as it as bad as it could get. Um, after that, because it was so damning uh, when he went through the, the the points in the FBI investigation. So I think it's maybe correct that they were are relieved. But that's it. Uh, exactly what the fallout that's going to be from this and how much it's going to hurt this campaign going forward. I mean, I can't imagine anything else that could take the campaign off its tracks like this. And I think it has a real chilling effect on Democratic voters, too, or people who might be considering Hillary Clinton, because, you know, this isn't Benghazi, which kind of devolved into that, into uh, what a lot of people consider sort of this partisan mudslinging contest. This is the director of the FBI saying the leader contender to be president of the United States is careless, that she's sloppy, that she ran a department that had a culture of misbehavior. And Democrats get fired up when you talk about Benghazi. But the voters I talked to this week, when I asked them, do you care about emails? The best they could come up with was kind of, no, I don't care because everyone lies. Everyone's careless on some level. That's not a ringing endorsement of Hillary Clinton's trustworthiness. No, it's not. But if you want to turn it on its head, I do think it's possible for Republicans to overreach on this issue. You saw uh, them bringing in the FBI director on the Hill uh, this week. And I think that there is the, the Clinton campaign are saying that are quickly to quick to say that this is just politics, that it's going to be another expensive, unnecessary initiative. And so I, I think that the Republicans should take it for what it is, which is good fodder for them, but be careful not to overreach or to waste this that waste this issue. And and uh, in addition to bringing in James Comey for hearings, they've uh, Speaker Ryan has also asked uh has also asked that Hillary Clinton not receive those classified briefings that are customarily provided to the nominees of the major parties, saying that she can't handle classified documents in her life as Secretary of State. She shouldn't be doing it now uh, before she becomes president. Um, And her campaign, like you said, just I think 
Is this what's happening right now that they assume Republicans will overreach because Clinton's campaign seems uh, determined not to deal with this so far? Well, you're right about that. And I think that that's what they're hoping for. But, of course, you can't just not deal with the issue. She's not talking about it. Exactly. She will have to either do one of two things, an interview or a press conference. We haven't seen a real press conference in a very, very long time. But, of course, not only is she going to have to answer questions, well, she should want to to put this issue away. If she answers questions uh, in a meaty way where, where, answer, where questions get answered, then I think that, that that does do a good job of putting the issue to bed. Uh, it's still, I think, going to be a critical issue on voters' minds because it plays right into the, the issues that that people don't like about Hillary Clinton, that she's not trustworthy, that the Clintons play by their own rules. This storyline feeds into that well, almost perfectly. Uh, but I think that answering the tough questions on this will do the campaign, will serve the campaign well. And our faithful Clinton embed, Liz Kreutz, who is on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton every day, pointed out, hasn't just been a long time since the Hillary Pre- Clinton press conference. It's been eight months. You look back to December 4th, 2015. That is the last time she sat down with a bunch of reporters and said, fire away for any substantial amount of time. Since then, her campaign has said, we'll do one. Uh, but generally, that's been limited to gaggles. and uh, Which could be as short as just two minutes, just a few questions. Yeah. So, so not a whole lot of uh, comments coming from Hillary Clinton so far. But all the ducks in a row for Donald Trump, everything's set. The playbook is there for the taking. And then... He tweeted. Let's take a quick break here, then we'll come back and we'll talk to Dana Schwartz. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a -a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. Hey, it's Brad again. I just want to remind you about abcnewspodcast.com. You can find all of our shows there. We've got something for everyone, so head over to abcnewspodcast.com. Take a listen. Subscribe to the ones you like. Now, back to the show. On the line joining us now is New York Observer writer Dana Schwartz, who grabbed headlines this week with her open letter to her boss, Jared Kushner, asking him to disavow that tweet we've heard so much about this week. Uh, the one that it looked like a Star of David imagery uh, on top of a pile of money. Uh, but of course, the open letter was much more than just that. Dana, can you just take us through the process? What, why did you feel compelled to write this letter? Sure. Uh, This was the first time in my life where I felt as personally attacked as I had for tweeting against Donald Trump and just a just a normal tweet calling out uh, his image for what I thought was blatant anti-Semitic symbolism. And the um, people who tweeted back to me uh, were horrific, just just vile, vile stuff. And then the response that that Mr. Trump gave the sort of like it's a sheriff's star or now just pointing to a a frozen coloring book uh, sort of uh, broke my heart. The fact that he could see a tweet with blatant anti-Semitic symbolism, have heard that it came from, you know, a a white supremacist Internet forum and and not apologize, just double down on 
giving anti-Semites and white supremacists free reign. How has work been uh, since this happened? I mean, we should say you're still at the Observer. We still email you at your Observer email address. What are the dynamics like since this was posted? Well, first, I'm incredibly grateful to be working at a place that allowed me to to write the open letter that I did. I think that took tremendous courage on the part of Ken Kirsten, our editor-in-chief. Um, the response from my colleagues has been incredibly gratifying uh, and supportive. I think now it's sort of reached a point where uh, it would be great if, uh, if I think people want me to get back to work a little bit and keep writing about arts and culture, which I did before this blew up. Dina, have you met Jared Kushner before? Have you spoken with him? And what what have those conversations been like when you talk about the owner of the Observer? Is this sort of the first time you've really had an interaction with him in public like this? Yes, I've I've never been in the same room with him actually. And and so, what was what has that dynamic been like to to deal with the bo- your boss's boss's boss so openly, somebody who's dealing with a presidential campaign right now in a scenario that's put you front and center, and like you said, receiving uh, just really incendiary stuff on Twitter. You posted some of those reactions, and and they're really shocking. Yeah, I will say after I I posted the open letter and tweeted it out and realized, okay, this sort of can't be undone anymore. I was I was kind of shaking. Um, it, it was definitely scarier than I thought while I was writing it. But while I was writing it, I was just fueled by passion and something that I I really thought needed to be said. And I, I stand by that completely. And I guess you haven't, you know, we saw Jared Kushner's own op-ed in, in the paper yesterday. But has he responded to you uh, personally or directly since this happened? He hasn't. And So I guess you're probably not expecting that to happen. No, I was I was I was impressed that he took the time to write um, as long of a response as he did. And so I, I guess you don't think that your job is is going to go anywhere then. It seems like you're confident in in the way things are at the Observer right now. Uh, I hope I hope that's the case. Um, I'm happy to, to be here and just get back to work doing my job, which is writing about TV and, and interviewing actors, uh, hopefully uh, my editor-in-chief and even Mr. Kushner, if he would were to read my, my other pieces, would think I was doing a good job here. Dana, let's talk about Donald Trump's response to all of this. I mean, the baseline from the Trump camp is, look, a star is a star. It's unreasonable to expect me to dissect the geometry of it when I see it. And, you know, if the star of David Shade doesn't cross your mind when you see it on a book about Frozen, you shouldn't have to parse it when you see this anti-Hillary Clinton ad. So if that all means that it was an accident, I guess you'd still be calling for an apology. Uh, But would you see it as indefensible if that's in fact what happened, if he just saw the shape of a star and went with it? Well, what happens is we have this pattern that Donald Trump has where he'll tweet out an image that uh, has a second meaning for the the extremist right wing fringe, uh, the white supremacists. Uh, And instead of a response from the, the Trump campaign that said it was it was inadvertent, we just saw a star when we found out that it came from a white supremacist. Uh, forum, we were horrified and and we're sorry for any pain we might have caused. Instead, we get this this kind of insulting uh, faux ignorance that that um, I think sort of sums up Donald Trump as a candidate. It also should be noted that he sort of undermined the work that Mr. Kushner did in his in his response to me. In his response, he acknowledged that that Trump was a I mean that tweet was a small he characterized it as a small careless mistake. Uh, he was 
trying to end this for Mr. Trump on his best terms, and yet the candidate had to tweet out something so horrifically flippant uh, that it, it undermined Mr. Kushner's work. You bring up a really interesting point, Dana, that that Jared Kushner did say that in his op-ed, that it was a careless mistake. And that's the only thing that his critics could go after Mr. Trump about. Um, that That's what he said in the op-ed. But then just last night, uh, it's actually been a week of, of bad Hillary Clinton news. But instead of focusing on that, Donald Trump doubling down uh, on the tweet, saying now that he wished that he hadn't deleted it, uh, which I think does fly in the face of what of what Jared Kushner wrote in your paper. So uh, what's your reaction to that? Uh, I was just uh, uh, shocked. I think when someone, when someone texted me and let me know that that's what he was speaking about, I was I was really speechless. I couldn't believe a, a presidential political candidate would be so obtuse and careless, both in his words and his actions. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, whether he's anti-Semitic as an individual, it doesn't matter. We're looking at a candidate for their actions and the consequences of those actions. And Mr. Trump's actions have been a series of of dog whistles to the most hateful faction of the American people. Uh, And he's been unapologetic in that. Do do you think that they are dog whistles? We've seen from some members of that community uh, that they they feel that way, that, that this is kind of a wink and a nod. But do you feel that way? Absolutely. I, I think that no one the the comparison to the the frozen cover is is almost laughable. It's anyone with an elementary school education on on symbolisms and patterns can recognize, okay, this was a tweet that came from white supremacist forums. The message came across loud and clear to people like David Duke and the the insane Holocaust deniers and anti Semites in my in my uh, uh, Twitter mentions. So to be completely willfully ignorant to that is is not just wrong, but it's problematic. You've made it very clear that you do think that this is not accidental, that this is a dog whistle, uh, which I think is very interesting on your part. Uh, But why do you think he's doing that? I mean, do you think that this is enough people to to have a voting blog? It doesn't seem to be. Yes, they seem to be very loud on Twitter. Uh, but, but why do you think that this is going on if you do think that this is a purposeful dog whistle? You know, I think Mr. Trump's base are Americans right now who feel small. And Mr. Trump's big mouth and the way he speaks is making them feel powerful. And he's going to make small, insecure people feel powerful any way he can. So, Dana, what's your bottom line for Donald Trump and for Mr. Kushner at this point? I mean, what is the thing you would want to hear from them? Is it an I'm sorry? Is it a corrective tweet of some sort? I mean, what what can either of these men actually do to make this right in your eyes or is it too late? Uh, I think, unfortunately, for, for Mr. Trump, it's too late. Uh, Jared Kushner's response, I thought, was um, I'm, I'm really grateful he, he did it. Uh, I would love to see his response to Donald Trump arguing yet again that it's just a star when he very clearly uh, was able to, in his response, not condescend to that answer. Mr. Uh, Kushner is a smart man, and he he understood that that image had symbolic importance. All right. Well, Dana Schwartz, entertainment writer at The New York Observer, dealing with a story that probably came outside of your comfort zone. But thank you so much for bringing it to us. Thank you very much, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. 
our interview with 538's Harry Enton is coming up. But first, I want to take a quick break to tell you about some of our other ABC News podcasts. If you're into meditation, you can check out 10% Happier with Dan Harris. And we should all be into meditation during this campaign cycle. If you want to go in-depth on the news of the week, you can check out Perspective or World News This Week. There's a bunch of other ones, too. You can find them all at abcnewspodcast.com. Again, that's abcnewspodcasts.com. All right, back to the show. All right, so we're joined now by Harry Enton, the man with the sweetest title in the game today. Ah, ah, ah. 538's official whiz kit. That's what we're calling you, right? That is apparently what they do call me. Uh, I'm not responsible for that nickname, and, but you're more than welcome to call me. Yeah, I'm certainly calling you 538's whiz kid. Uh, and so now you guys are out with your general election forecast model, this thing that's highly vaunted, it's highly expected. When it finally came out, Jaws dropped to the floor. What has it been, a week? It's been about a week, a little bit over a week, I believe. And the numbers are... Not good for for Donald Trump. Why don't you just take us off the beginning and explain what it looks like right now? Sure. So basically we have three different sort of forecasts or two forecasts and one other thing that's going on. So we have a polls only model, which is our main model, I would say. And that basically looks at the state level polls and the national polls and a little bit of demographics. And it puts together a forecast. And that has basically, since it came out, showed Hillary Clinton with at least a 75 percent chance of winning the election. We have a polls plus forecast, which also takes into account economic measures. That also shows Hillary Clinton with about a 75 percent chance of winning or a little bit less than that. And then we also have a now cast, which essentially says, OK, if the election were being held today, what percentage chance would Hillary Clinton have of winning? And again, that shows Hillary Clinton being a heavy favorite. But that could change as the months go on. Of course it can change. Uh, You know, there's a reason why we don't have Hillary Clinton as a 100 percent chance of winning the election. The model takes in new information as it comes in, specifically polling information. And if you're looking at the Polls Plus model, also economic information. And if, say, the economy went south, for instance, then that Pulse Plus model would certainly readjust itself. And we'd probably also see the polls readjust themselves, too. And Donald Trump would have a better chance of winning if the economy went south. Talk about the polls that you guys use when when you go through these. I mean, what are you looking for from your polls? I I was looking at one state that, you know, you had what you guys consider an A poll, but that was four months ago. And now you've got a C plus poll. I assume that's changing at what, just a few percentage points. Sure. I mean, we wait polls based upon their past accuracy. So the polls that have done better in the past, such as the ABC News Washington Post poll, little plug in there, um, has done specific, <laughs> Thank you for that. Thanks, Harry. <laughs> has, done, has done very well in the past. So when a poll from ABC News Washington Post comes out, we weight it more heavily than, say, a poll from Rasmussen Reports, which has done more poorly. But we also know that polls that are taken more recently, especially closer we get to the election, those should be weighted even more than, say, a poll that comes out, you know, four or five months. These types of things make sense. But in specific states where we don't have a lot of polling uh, polling information, like Nevada, there we weight the demographics a little bit more heavily. So Nevada has been a state, for instance, that has leaned a little bit more Democratic than the nation as a whole the last few election cycles. So we have limited polling there, which actually shows Donald Trump being fairly competitive. But we're going to wait until more polling information comes out to weight the polls more heavily there. When we talk about the – if we want to look backwards just briefly in the primary process – Everybody pretty much got it wrong, uh, you know, the, all the pundits. Uh, but forecasting, too, how did that change the way your general election model uh, is now? 
I think the one thing that we really learned from the primary process is to trust the polls more than our intuition and perhaps more than other fundamentals in the past that have been more reliable indicators. So if you look back at the primary process, you see, in fact, Donald Trump jumped out to a lead in the polls fairly early on. In fact, by this point in the 2016 Republican primary process, he led in the national polls. He led in the state of South Carolina. He led in the state of New Hampshire. But we were like, oh, no, it's too early. We shouldn't trust the polls based upon prior years. This year, however... The polls were right on, and that is, in fact, why we're leaning more heavily on the polls-only model than the polls-plus model, which takes into account economic measures. We believe that the polls are giving us more information at this point than perhaps we would weight them usually. So the conventional wisdom was Donald Trump won't do anything. Conventional wisdom was Hillary Clinton crushes Bernie Sanders, he goes away. Is there, in the larger political world right now, is there a piece of conventional wisdom that you think is wrong or at least unjustified? I would say that there are a few things. Number one is that just because Donald Trump defied expectations in the primary means he's going to defy expectations again in the general. But the other thing that I would just point out is that, you know, we give Donald Trump about a 25 percent chance of winning the election. A lot of people say that and go, oh, no, he doesn't have much of a chance. 25 percent chance things happen all of the time. I mean, I'm a fan of the Buffalo Bills. They win more than 25 percent of their games, even though they lose more frequently than they win. Things that are 25 percent can definitely happen. Donald Trump is not the favorite in this general election, but he can win. And some people who are perhaps not fans of Donald Trump need to wrap their heads around that. Harry, I want to talk about uh, some of your state polling that, that you used in the forecast. Donald Trump, we've heard throughout the campaign, but now that we're in the general election, talks talks about states that he is planning on winning, that he wants to win, that we do not have uh, in our race ratings or in your race ratings or in your forecast as, as possible battlegrounds. New York, New Jersey, California. Can you talk about this a little bit? Sure. Uh, we're essentially, you know, looking at the polls in those states. We also look at the demographics, but we have... A- number of polls in those states that you mentioned, New York, New Jersey, California, and those basically, for the most part, confirm uh, what we thought was going to happen. For instance, there was a field poll that was just released in the state of California, which, if you include Gary Johnson, has Hillary Clinton up by 24 percentage points. I don't think that's going to be a state that Donald Trump's going to be competitive in. If you look at the state of New York, there was a recent Siena poll, which had Hillary Clinton up by 23 percentage points. Again, I don't think that's a state where Donald Trump's going to be competitive in. New Jersey is a more interesting case, right? This is a state where George W. Bush played in 2004. He lost, but he only lost by single digits. It's a state that has a lot of suburban areas, which Donald Trump, and specifically white suburban areas, where Donald Trump might be able to make a play. However, there's been a growing minority population in the state. And although the polls in New Jersey perhaps suggest a tighter race than in New York or California, the most recent poll, which came out from Fairleigh Dickinson, had Donald Trump trailing in that state by double digits. Again, that margin differed depending on whether you included Gary Johnson in the question or not. So I don't think he is actually going to be competitive in any of those states, but he can say whatever he wants. It hasn't stopped. Facts haven't stopped Donald Trump from saying things in the past. So that's why blue states you don't see turning red. What about red states turning blue? I mean, Arizona is an awfully, awfully light shade of pink in your model right now. Right. And that's based upon the polling, right? Uh, The polling suggests that Arizona is going to be competitive. Right now we have Donald Trump as the slightest of favorites in Arizona. That's based upon a recent poll that came out there, which had him leading, although Other polls have, in fact, showed Hillary Clinton leading. But if you look at Arizona, there are a number of reasons to think it might be competitive. Number one, you have a large Hispanic population in the state, a growing Hispanic population in the state. But also you have a a fairly significant Mormon population in the state. And if you look at the primary process, you saw that Donald Trump did worse in areas with high Mormon populations, capstone by doing particularly poorly in the Utah primary 
and you also a Utah caucus, excuse me, and you also see that in Utah in the general election he's doing particularly poorly. This was a state that was carried by nearly 50 percentage points by Mitt Romney in 2012, and at best Donald Trump is leading by single digits in that state according to most of the polls that are out from there. So it shouldn't be too surprising that in Arizona when you combine the Hispanic population and the Mormon population that Arizona is going to be competitive. And just looking forward, how often, and obviously I don't want you to take, tell us any trade secrets, but are you changing your forecast, change your, changing your modeling uh, with each poll? How often? I mean, we offer a forecast update pretty much daily, and that's based upon really? the new polls that come out every day. You'll see small, minute changes, decimal point changes. That, to be honest, is more to feed the junkie, including myself. Um, and we want the most up-to-date information out there. But the basic tenets of the model, what the model's taking into account doesn't really change. It's still taking into account polls. It's still taking into account demographics where there are limited polls. And it's still taking into account economic measures if you're looking at the polls plus model. And I just want to ask about that, that daily change. Talking about the campaign, we've had, this has been a really critical week on the, on the campaign trail. Big events uh, like the email scandal, like what James Comey said this week. Uh, when can we see those changes in polling? Obviously, then polls need to go in the field, but but uh, does that go into to this daily changes? Sure. I mean, yeah, the polls have to go into the field. If the polls change, then the model is going to change. Uh, there are certain things that are built in to say the polls plus model, um, which we know in the past have changed things like conventions. We take into, uh, into effect the convention bounce. That is definitely taken into account. The Hillary Clinton FBI investigation, in fact, there hasn't really been an analogous situation to this in the past, so we can't really take that into account or try to model it. We'll wait for the polls to come out, and we'll see if the polls issue any sort of change. So far, we really haven't seen much of a change in the polls, although over the past few weeks in some of the national polls, we have seen that Donald Trump has climbed slightly a little bit closer to Hillary Clinton, but it really hasn't been much of a significant change at all. And do you see that being because of those trustworthy not? Worthiness numbers? I mean, sure. I mean, look, these are two historically flawed candidates. It just turns out that Hillary Clinton hit the jackpot by facing off against Donald Trump. And, you know, at the end of the day, elections are about a choice. And right now, more Americans are choosing the lesser of two evils and Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So not to ask you for your conventional wisdom, though, but I mean, where do you see this? Where do you see this email investigation stacking up in, in terms of those events that can really shape a campaign? I, I think that most people already don't believe Hillary Clinton on any number of issues. Her honest, trustworthy numbers are terrible. Um, most people see Donald Trump as being a blowhard, excuse my language. Um, so the idea, though, of being that Hillary Clinton was not found, uh, was not indicted, that to me is a a bridge that she sort of jumped over. I think one person said it was like playing in an AFC divisional playoff game, and it was an ugly win, but it was still a win. She got to the next round. Uh, it may have bloodied her a little bit, but the fact is she's still standing, and that was probably the last major issue standing between her and the Democratic nomination and also the presidency. And right now, it, we just go back to where we were, which is that Hillary Clinton is a very unpopular figure, but Donald Trump is a more unpopular figure. Harry, and, and just coming off of what you just said, how unfavorable, those high unfavorables for both of these candidates, why are we not seeing the numbers grow for the 
other candidates in this race. Gary Johnson, the Libertarian candidate, Jill Stein, Dr. Jill Stein, she's the Green Party candidate. We spoke to her last week. What's your explanation for that? Well, I will say that even if we're not seeing their numbers climb, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are not doing particularly well in the polls. Uh, in fact, if you look at the 538 forecasts, we have neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump with a 50 percent chance of greater of reaching a majority of the popular vote. They're probably going to get elected at this point, either one of them with less than 50 percent. We're, in fact, including Gary Johnson in our model. We're including Gary Johnson and not including Jill Stein for any number of reasons, not the least of which is we think Gary Johnson's going to be on the ballot in all 50 states. Uh, that's very unusual. Gary Johnson right now is polling in the high single digits. That's pretty good for a third-party candidate. So I do think that, in fact, we have seen um, the third-party candidates doing better than we traditionally see third-party candidates doing. But, look, this is a polarized country. There are very few true independents, even if there are a number of people who claim they're independents. They usually lean towards the Democratic or Republican Party. So I don't think it should be too surprising that at least at this point, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein aren't polling all that well. Do you think that we could see, though, that number grow so that they get onto the debate stage? Or is that just very unlikely at this point? I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. Look, especially if Gary Johnson is able to raise money and Bill Weld is a master, his vice presidential um, candidate is a master of raising money. If he's able to get some ads on the air, then it's possible that those numbers could grow. But I think the thing that I would be looking at for in terms of reaching a magic number is 5%, which, of course, is the number that is needed to get uh, federal funding in the next election, federal funding for the Party, uh, that's a number that I think is in grasp um, or is in reach for Gary Johnson. It's going to be very interesting to see if he's able to reach it. Well, Harry, the 538's whiz kid, thanks so much for joining us this week. And we look forward to hearing your insight throughout the campaign. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment to rate the show on iTunes and write a review. Tell us what you think. If you like the podcast, tell your friends about us. You can also tweet at us using the hashtag PowerhousePolitics. And don't forget, you can check out a bunch more ABC News podcasts by going to abcnewspodcast.com. Shoshana, thanks for being here. It's been a great news-packed show. Yeah, like drinking out of a fire hose this (laughs) week. Every day on the campaign trail. It really is. Uh, For Shoshana, I'm Brad Milkey. We'll see you next week.